0: What do you imagine when you think of the imagination? Perhaps you're drawn to the Lord of the Rings epic and fictional tales and Greek mythology and dragons, or, or maybe you think of abstract art, or maybe you think of daydreaming poolside on a hot summer day. It could be anything. But traditionally, the imagination has been carved off and relegated to categories of fiction and mythology and make-believe, things that are interesting and entertaining, but not really true or significant. But in post-Christian America, the role of the imagination has come to the foreground increasingly by serious theologians who argue that in order for the Church to do thoughtful theology today, or to engage in serious cultural dialogue, the Church must reclaim the imagination's power to communicate truth. In short, I will call this the non-fiction imagination. Something I began exploring a few years back when I was writing my first book and wrestling with the many ways, the Book of Revelation uses imaginative scenes like red dragons and multi-headed beasts to communicate reality. And in the coming months on the Authors on the Line podcast, I want to look at this nonfiction imagination from a few different angles. And one of those angles is the metaphor. Metaphors can carry an infinite weight of meaning. For example, when the Bible reveals that Christ is a lamb, it tells us that Christ is both a lamb and is not a lamb at the same time. Metaphors lead us to embrace one thing in terms of some but not all of the characteristics of another thing, such as the potential value and importance of metaphors. And one writer who has spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the serious value of metaphor for theology, is Douglas Wilson, who is an author, a blogger, a pastor, and a public cultural debater who lives in Moscow, Idaho. Wilson argues that metaphors are profoundly rooted in creation, and as we will hear him explain later, it's made possible only because God is sovereign. In his book, Angels in the Architecture, Wilson writes, quote, because we are creatures, we must necessarily see and express the world poetically. All our knowledge is, in some fashion, metaphorical. Only God knows things immediately, for us, wound tight in our finitude, knowledge of the world must be mediated, that is, apportioned to us the same way a toddler gets his mashed peas end quote. In other words, metaphors are a serious way in which we grasp truths about God and his creation. But how and why? These are the questions still left unanswered, and so I put Pastor Doug on the line, and I began our conversation by asking him, what comes to his mind when I mention the phrase, nonfiction imagination? I'll, I'll
1: begin with sort of a bottom-line definition of how I've, how I think of it, and then I'll probably have to backtrack and explain that a, a little bit. I would describe the non-fiction imagination as thinking in metaphor. So uh, instead of thinking in P's and Q's, which is fine in its place, rather learning to think in metaphor. And I think the ground for this is the triune nature of God. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what you have is identity and distinction. Now that's fundamentally what a metaphor is. This is that, but this is that by virtue of not being that. When we learn to think in metaphor, we are not becoming slippery or dishonest or uh, untethered from the world. We are conforming to the way the world fundamentally is. So, uh, so obviously, um, there are images and, and myths and stories and so forth in the realm of fiction but what what happens is that, you know, when someone says, "Oh, that's a myth," or uh, uh, the the myth of neutrality, or what they mean is the untruth of of. So myth has become uh, to represent something like a lie, and there are Christians who struggle with whether or not you could, you know, act in a movie or or write a book because it's not uh, a videotaped recording of actual events, and therefore is it is it a lie? Is it a misrepresentation? Well, no, I think the Scripture teaches us that there are more ways of telling the truth than that.
0: Is it fitting for typology, then, to come into the discussion at this this point?
1: Oh, very very much so. Um, I, I think the, uh, the Scripture mandates or requires us to go down this road, and this is something that Jonathan Edwards, I think, uh, handled wonderfully in his discussion in, in his book on types, not only did he uh, see typology in scripture, which I think we need to if 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 we accept the inspiration of the scripture at all, but Edwards took this the Bible as sort of a primer on how to learn to read the world. so you you not only see the types in scripture, but you then go out into the woods. And you start seeing things. What do spiders mean? What do graveyards mean? What does what does a sunrise mean? And when you are doing that, you're being you're becoming a dis, your metaphors are becoming uh, discipled. Every everything about us is called to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you've got. Well, one of the things I've got is metaphor. One of the things the human mind is connected to, wire, hardwired up to use a metaphor. Right. One of the things that we're hardwired to do is to think in metaphors. Well, that means I'm to love God with that.
0: Was there a, uh, an aha moment in your life or ministry when you discovered the importance of nonfiction imagination to communicate divine truth?
1: I think, like a, like so many things, it happened sort of in in stages. I the first resolve was when when we were first establishing. A credenda as a magazine, and I—I I have been. I grew up in an evangelical household. I've been around missionary newsletters my whole life. I've been, um, I've seen Christian magazines and publications and books, et cetera, for a long, long time. And one of the things that they all had in uh, in common, or seemed to have, to me in common, was their their boringness, their their blandness. So you've you've got in the uh, in the acceptable world of evangelical Christian discourse, you have the bland leading the bland, if we could speak that way. And when we were writing, when we were first setting out with credenda, it was this was sort of a uh, a central resolve, and I didn't, I don't think I quite knew how to do it or what we needed to do, but I think that led to what we're talking about now, uh, and and that is I wanted our we I wanted to write about. These things—theology and doctrine and history and culture—in a way that was engaging and interesting, not boring. It might be it might be infuriating, or it might be exasperating, or you you might um, be tearing your hair out, but you don't want to put it down. Uh, so there were, you know, I think of authors like uh, G.K. Chesterton. You know, he he edifies me even while he's exasperating me. So if I'm differing with him, I'm still delighting in him. Uh, and, and I wanted prose like that. I wanted something that, that would engage people that, in that way. And, of course, the appeal to Chesterton uh, sort of is a signpost. Um, Chesterton once said, A paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention. And I, that's, that's the way of interesting prose. Chesterton thought in metaphors.
0: He sure did. And it, it seems C.S. Lewis also models how to do metaphors for very serious ends. Um, how do you explain Lewis's influence on, on you here?
1: Chesterton was a big influence, but Lewis was by far and away the, the dominant controlling uh, influence in my life as a little kid. I th- my dad read the first Narnia story to us when I was five, which had been in 1958. So I think they were still coming out. I think the books were still coming out, you know. <laughs> they were new and fresh and this was this was really something and i can't tell you how many times i've w- went through the narnia books as a, as a kid and then in high school i started reading lewis's theology and and then that led to tolkien and and chesterton and so forth and someone once said of lewis and i think this is very appropriate and and that is that he made righteousness readable and and that's what i wanted i wanted to, to be able to take what i was saying the content of what i was saying and make it readable but not by and and this is the this is the hard part to communicate to to people many times people think that the content or the substance of what you have to say is like the frozen yogurt in the cup and then you sprinkle whatever adverbs and adjectives on top of it like so many m&ms so stylistic considerations or you know the decorative metaphor is hauled in, sort of by the ears as an afterthought, and and but you've got you're okay because your cup is full of frozen yogurt. You know you've got the you've got the substance there. Well, I I, I don't think that style metaphor engaging prose is detached from the argument. I think it's part of the arg- it's it's part of the argument. It's how God communicates with us, and it's how we should communicate with each other. So if we, if we were able to figure out a way of having some divine, logical, absolutely precise Esperanto, you know, no metaphors at all, uh, we would lose a great deal of the content, not just the decorations. We would lose the content, and so it's very uh, important that we see metaphor rightly used as an embrace of truth, as part of the pursuit of truth, and not as sort of a sidling away from it or uh, um, a loss of truth. Okay, Um, you're telling us stories about Sam Gamgee. That means that didn't really happen, and because it didn't really happen, I'm only getting something three-quarters true. Well, no, I think you might be more likely getting something that's 130% true.
0: I want to press in on this point, because metaphors are not added like sprinkles to the top of prose, like you said. I mean, metaphors are more deeply rooted in the very process of logic. Explain this from your own testimony. Uh, Where do the metaphors that you use come from? At what stage in your mind do you begin thinking metaphorically?
1: Part of the answer, as long as—I'm happy to discuss this as long as there's a fundamental center here where we all acknowledge that I don't know what I'm talking about. I I don't know where some of this comes from. But ultimately, I believe it comes from God. Uh, there's a great line that John Bunyan uses at the beginning of Pilgrims for Progress. He has a little poem that he has there and there's a great line in there where he says, "And as I pulled it came. I, I think that that is a great description of the creative uh, of the creative process. So sometimes a metaphor will come you know I'm just drifting uh, off asleep or 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 waking up I'm in that that, that weird gray zone between sleep and wakefulness, and and a connection will occur to me. Sometimes this is going to sound funny. I get I get uh, metaphors or plays on words from typos, or or from uh, typos or autocorrect. Uh, you know, I'll start typing something and it's the wrong thing, and then I say, "But wait, I could do something with that." Uh, so there are th- there are serendipitous things like that. But the fundamental thing is, if someone said yes, but do they come at the same rate that they used to when you were eighteen or twenty-five? No, it, my brain is more teeming with them now, than than they than I was as a young man, and the, uh, the reason for that is I believe that this is the sort of thing where you have to prime the you have to prime the pump. Uh, it's the reverse of the garbage in, garbage out, uh, the GIGO principle: garbage in, garbage out. Okay, Meta- metaphor in, metaphor out. So if you if you are steeped in Scripture, if you, and going back to Bunyan, I think Spurgeon said of Bunyan that if you pricked him anywhere, his blood would run Bibline; he would bleed Bible verses. Well, if you're steeped in Scripture, and not just as uh, your your spiritual granola bar for the day, you're, you're reading the Bible, and you're reading the Bible as sort of a literary glory. God knows how to write. All right. Now the pro- the problem is conservative Christians have become suspicious over the years, and for some good reason, of all Bible as lit courses. You know they think they think uh, they think of those courses at, at a secular university as taught by an apostate, alcoholic Methodist pastor, <laughs> right? Who uh, the literary values of the Bible is the only thing he's got left from the Bible, and so we we've got our guard up against that, but if you look at some of the good work that's done by people like Leland Ryken and other other folks who, who point to the rich tapestry of literary devices and, and uh, things that God uses, uh, there's no reason why a believer can't come to these things and and learn from it, take from it.
0: Yes, and, and some listeners who know their Bibles well will object to our conversation uh, right now and all these positive references to the imagination, let, let's step back and talk semantics just for a second, because in the Bible the imagination is, I think, only referenced uh, negatively as evil, as self-autonomous, as as self-delusional. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of texts like Genesis six five, Romans one twenty one, Acts seventeen twenty nine, etc. So there's an evil imagination which seems to be some replacement for the truth, and what appears to be a healthy imagination. Uh, how would you explain the difference between a godless imagination and a godly imagination? I,
1: I would say that the difference has to do with whether it's tethered to the word and to the world. Okay. So um, it's the difference between a dream and a daydream. So if I'm a, if I'm uh, Joseph and I dream of, or I'm talking to Pharaoh who's dreamed about seven skinny cows and seven fat cows, that's not untethered from the world. That's, that's tethered to the world that's connected to the world it's a it's a dream now some pizza dreams are (laughs) completely untethered um but the but we don't bank on them we don't do anything with them if you're a junior high boy given over to daydreams and you went and talked to your father about it is there anything wrong with spending three hours thinking about saving the world you know uh and having all the girls adore me is there is there anything wrong with that and a wise father would say, y- yes, there's something wrong with it, is, and that is that it's untethered from the word and it's untethered from the world, but, it, but it's not untethered from you. So the, the fundamental tether, the fundamental tie there is its egoism. I'm, I'm the hero, and I'm the necessary axiomatic a priori hero. But if I'm imagining in line with the way the word teaches – and I'm imagining in line with um, uh, the way the world actually is, I can imagine how my wife will respond if I pick up flowers on the way home. I, sh- I should imagine that. And I should, I should imagine that on the basis of past experience, on the basis of knowledge of how the, how the world works, what the Bible teaches, and you know, all of those things. But that kind of imagination is not untethered. It's absolutely tethered.
0: It seems like with the rise of postmodernism and culture we tend to talk a lot about Christian worldview how does how does Christian worldview relate to the Christian imagination? are they overlapping? do they work together? are they essentially the same thing or, or different how, how would you explain that
1: yeah um, one of the first things that you should notice about it is and and i, I I'm not speaking I'm going to use uh, short some shorthand here, but I'm not doing this as sort of a sectarian partisan or anything but one of the first things we should notice is that having a robust Christian worldview that would allow us to to sort of fully embrace or grasp or pursue the value of metaphor and the value of thinking of, of the world imaginatively, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's prose or poetry or you know whatever, is that this requires a robust doctrine of God's sovereignty. Um, I, I think Calvinism is necessary. Now, it may be... Uh, it may be informal like most most christians are calvinists when they pray you know so it may not be it may not be confessional it may not be the westminster confession of faith or anything like that but it you have to have a strong doctrine of god in everything this over here can be connected to that over there because there is a point of connection somewhere but you know i can i can trace this out or i can find connections because I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. There's there's nothing that I see that hasn't been seen before. There's nothing that I just stumble across that hasn't been uh, known before. So it's possible, since all of these things have a common designer, a common God, a common Lord, and I, I, I find this over here and that over there, and you know, chocolate and peanut butter, and I put them together, and it's a stroke of genius. <laughs> Whoa, you know, look at this. But God was already there. Okay, now, in the marketplace of ideas, we we are up against um, Christians today are up against um, basically modernism and postmodernism as sort of the two great giants of the that need to be slain. Modernism, uh, modernism, and postmodernism, ironically, agree on. One central tenet, and that is that metaphor is meaningless. Okay, they they agree that metaphor is meaningless. The modernists say therefore, since we're on a hunt for meaning, we're going to go find it somewhere else. We're going to find it in the formula or in math or theoretical physics. So you have a deep suspicion of the humanities. It's just entertainment. It, it's nothing. The all the important stuff is being done by the scientists and the engineers. So th- their vision is, in the beginning was the formula, or in the beginning was the equation. And, and so they, they say metaphor is meaningless, that's a dead end, and we need meaning, so we're going to pursue it elsewhere. The postmodernist agrees that metaphor is meaningless, but says, and everything is metaphor. So there's no escape. You know, there's, Everything collapses on itself. So there's there's no there's no way to keep postmodernism from becoming a reductionistic crater. It just collapses. Everything is meaning. Everything is metaphor, and everything's meaningless, including me talking right now. So the, the the whole thing falls down in a heap. Well, Christians can say, and I think must say, need to say, that everything is metaphor, and that's why it has meaning. The universe is God's metaphor. Sorry, the, the universe is God saying. Uh, I'm going to create something that declares my glory. Right? so i I look at the stars, I look at the sun, I look at mountain ranges. and if I see the glory of God there, then I'm seeing accurately. if i just if I see so many atoms in motion, I'm seeing inaccurately. If I see blindless blind chaos, uh, I'm seeing inaccurately. so so God says the heavens declare the glory of God. all of this, God's divine nature is clearly seen through what has been made well how can i look at that which is not god and see god that that's that's fundamentally metaphor and then when i come into sort of theology proper when i'm dealing with god directly i come to god through his visible image the visible image of the invisible god god wants me to come through a visible entity that is him and not him and 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 so consequently uh, the Christian above all people, should trust metaphor like nobody like nobody's business,
0: so just to reiterate your point, and I think it's a very important one uh, because God is sovereign over every detail of the cosmos, all of creation is interlinked and related and therefore God's sovereignty is what makes metaphorical meaning possible. In, in fact, all of creation is metaphorical or has potential metaphorically. Thus, I, it, so it, it seems to indicate that if evolution were true, then Edwards could not go out into his garden, look at the spider, and make any theological metaphorical connections, because the spider would just be the product of some random mutation, of, uh, and the interweb of creation would be broken. That's essentially what, what you're saying. Right.
1: The, wor- the world would have all kinds of cul-de-sacs in it. Yeah, and but notice in our conversation, we're you know cul-de-sacs in it. That's thinking with a metaphor. Uh, I'm saying trying to make sense of the world uh, without typology and without this declaration is like driving in a strange city with all these cul-de-sacs. Well, this is that, while recognizing that this is not that. That's the way our minds ought to be functioning. That's the way our minds ought to be working. Now, as it happens, this is really there's an odd quirk here. Aristotle said that. The ability to use metaphor, he described it as a mark of genius. There are some things that are, you know, virtually any metaphor works. So, and I've, I've stumbled across this reading a dictionary once, a dictionary of slang or rules or something. Um, and that is the getting drunk, metaphors for getting drunk. You can use virtually anything, you know, whether he's three sheets to the wind, what's he. Uh, where's Bill right now? Well, he's over there polishing the silver, or he he put on a snowsuit and headed north. So, uh, virtually anything random applies for that. But that illustrates the principle. That illustrates the principle that you can have the wildest stretch between that which you're comparing and uh, comparing to something else, and the thing itself. It it can be uh, an enormous distance between them, and yet because God is sovereign, it still works.
0: I want to talk about metaphors in public dialogue. I mean, you're known for some high-profile public debates over atheism and a series of debates you did with the late Christopher Hitchens, and most recently you debated Andrew Sullivan over homosexuality. How does metaphor come into play when you as a Christian are engaged in these types of cultural debates, and particularly in your most recent debate on homosexuality?
1: Well, uh, this is the way I would bring it in. Uh, I would say that the collapse of... um, of the American, the, the American mind or the, the American public center away from the heterosexual norm is clearly a collapse of imagination. A man who marries a man or a woman who marries a woman is marrying someone just like them. A man who marries a woman is, is entering terrifying alien territory. Here's someone who is utterly unlike me and yet and this goes back to the whole metaphor. She goes with me. She fits with me. So when Adam names the animals, he sees that they all have pairs. They all have mates. And, but there's no one suitable for him among the animals. You know, there's, there's no one who's unlike me in the like me way. The, the elephant is not like me. And the baboon is not like me. And the snake is not like me. But they're not like me in the not like me way all of them i've got i look at them and i see a male and a female and and the female is not like the male but he's it, she's not like the male in a way that still goes with that right and adam comes to the recognition that i have no one unlike me like me and so the whole the, the human race is built on metaphor and and when you shrink from that, when, when you, you have this um, a series of failures where selfishness and sin and oftentimes abuse, sexual sin, anger, that sort of thing, drives the sexes apart, you have this, uh, there, there's this great divide between male and female, which I think even Adam and Eve felt in their unfallen state. There, there's a chasm here, and it's a chasm that's meant to be crossed. Well, what happens if, you, if sin enters and you make that chasm a thousand times wider? Well, you, you can't cross it anymore, and then you have to settle on this side of the chasm. Find someone who's like you, and so who's like you in the like you way. Um, and so you have, if a man marries a man, what is that but a failure of imagination? What is that but someone who has admitted defeat in figuring out how to communicate with someone who's utterly unlike? And that's, and, and then when the, the advocates of traditional marriage make their case, they step right into it. They lead with their chin when they, when they try to represent traditional marriage as traditional, safe, ho-hum, pedestrian. And, and the gay lifestyle is represented everybody as the wild and crazy lifestyle. It's exactly the opposite. This is uh, where um, we need a Chesterton and a Chesterton's pen to explain how terrifying it is for a man to live with a woman. Uh, and, and that's what Chesterton excelled at, is taking ordinary things and making us see how extraordinary they, they actually are. And what, what the gay activists are doing is taking something very, very ordinary and making it seem extraordinary. And we have something extraordinary, and we're allowing it to be portrayed as humdrum.
0: That's very convicting. So uh, let's transition and talk about some of the challenges of communicating metaphor. I mean, in the public square, what, what are the challenges that you face in communicating metaphorically?
1: This is a hard thing to encapsulate. But um, if you look at, uh, let's say, take it out of the homosexual marriage debates or the, or the culture wars context, and you just move into the sort of the Christian realm where these things are all happily accepted and we don't have the moral controversy raging. If you look at the books, you know, marriage books, the the kinds of things that uh, Christians produce for Christians who share all their assumptions, one of the things that is, I think, apparent to me is that we have allowed the whole thing to become domesticated and safe. We want safety first instead of instead of righteousness first so so we we don't want some lion on the savannah we want a little tabby cat and if my marriage is boring and pedestrian it can be as long as it's safe it's it's okay you know it's okay and i and i think it reduces ultimately at the end of the day to to cowardice so uh, and and then you've got uh, people who—that doesn't keep Christians from using words like, vibrant, exciting, totally alive, etc. But the, all those labels are being attached to something that's pretty, you know, blah. Uh, so we're we're trying to basically we're making, uh, we're making the font bigger. We're adding exclamation points to try to get people whipped up, but but that doesn't do it. You know, you're you're adding M and M's. Let's let's add let's add uh, adjectives. Let's add. Excitement! Let's make it all caps. Sort of a wild and crazy time, all caps. But that's not how it works. We need a return to trinitarian theology at sort of the center, driving everything, so that someone, when they say something, it could. It, you don't need all the exclamation points. You don't need all that. It's still engaging and interesting. So I think I think that someone could, for example, take uh, give me a laundry list that. C.S. Lewis wrote, and I think I'd be able to tell from the timbre of his voice that who it was. You hear three notes of B.B. King's "Lucille" his his guitar, and that I know I know where the, I know who that is. Well, that's uh, and Owen, Owen Barfield said once of um, uh, of Lewis that what he thought about everything was contained in what he said about anything, and that that again comes back to this point about metaphor and imagination. My any uh, sentence, that I, if I craft a sentence, that sentence should be a microcosm
0: of my worldview. I could talk about this for a long time with you, Pastor Doug. Uh, to close out, can you give us some book recommendations, either from Chesterton or Lewis or both of them, examples from these guys who seriously engage culture with metaphors to make biblical points?
1: Thomas Peters wrote a book called The Christian Imagination, and it's G.K. Chesterton on the Arts. And that's a great little introduction to how how Chesterton's uh, mind worked. Uh, how his mind worked. Another one would be uh, *Brave New Family* by Chesterton himself, which which is a good example of someone writing a century ago on issues that still afflict us. And you see how f- far-sighted he was. You know how um, how clearly he saw what was what was going on. So. Um, Brave New Family, I would, I would say um, pr- there are some small books by Lewis, uh, The Weight of Glory, uh, collections of essays. So uh, a number of his things on wordcraft and writing and imagination are in uh, books like uh, Of Other Worlds, or uh, there's um, uh, Fernseed and Elephant, The Weight of Glory, The World's Last Night, uh, uh, God in the Dock, Christian Reflections. Uh, I found them to be very valuable, um, and then he, his book-length treatment of a lot of these things is *Experiment and Criticism*, where uh, Lewis discusses what makes a what
0: makes a book good. That was Douglas Wilson from his office in Moscow, Idaho. Doug is the author of several books, and whether or not you agree with all the individual metaphors he uses in his writings, it is clear that Wilson is an author whose books are loaded with examples of how to use striking metaphors to communicate meaning. And pastors and writers who are interested in learning more from Wilson on the tricks of finding and storing and using metaphors will be helped by Chapter 7 of his book, Wordsmithy, Hot Tips for the Writing Life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors Online podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis, and you can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store, or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.